Join me, would you, in your copy of God's Word today, again in the epistle to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, and we are going to go through chapter 6, verse 12 today. It's a little bit longer uh, text, uh, but, uh, but it all kind of goes together, and it's important that we work through it all, I think, uh, in one piece together this way. Uh, if you have been reading ahead at all in Hebrews to see you know, where we'll be week to week and what we may be covering in uh, worship uh, each, each Sunday. Perhaps you have read ahead and you've gotten to Hebrews chapter 6, specifically verses 4 through 6, and you've wondered, what is Pastor Stephen going to do with that? Uh, we come to what is unmistakably one of the most uh, or more difficult passages of Scripture to us today uh, as the author to, uh, of the letter to the Hebrews gives a very stern warning uh, to the church there. We'll look at that all in due time, but uh, there are passages in God's Word that are hard like this, that are maybe difficult to understand immediately and take some work to get through. There's times kind of on our road toward maturity in Christ where we get onto a rough spot and we've got to shift that transmission down into four low and take it slow, and so we're going to work our way methodically through this text this morning so that we can understand it rightly, apply it to ourselves appropriately, that we might live for God's glory, uh, being sanctified by Him and in His image. Uh, last week, we, <clears throat> uh, at the end of chapter 5, or, or chapter 5, verse 10, we began to see the author of Hebrews talking about this correlation between the priesthood of that mysterious Old Testament figure, Melchizedek, that king-priest who, uh, who preceded the people of Israel, even the whole, uh, all of the priests of Israel, and how Melchizedek's priesthood correlated to Jesus' priesthood. Or if we can put that differently, how Jesus' priesthood fulfills all that Melchizedek's priesthood was meant to foreshadow. Uh, that that's kind of a difficult topic. And the author of Hebrews, having said that, would like to go on to explain what that means even more. And as we'll see in chapter 5, verse 11, he finds himself frustrated with those that he is writing to because the Hebrews to whom he is writing, these first century Jewish background believers in Jesus, have up to this point showed a stubbornness uh, uh, collectively to mature in their faith. And the reason they are stubborn, the reason that they're not able to mature in their faith is because they are continually stumbling over the most foundational truths of the gospel. So here the author of Hebrews is going to warn those that he is writing to that continued stubbornness, continued sluggishness, continued spiritual complacency, and a lack of desire to grow in maturity can actually look like and bear the same fruit as faithlessness altogether. He's going to say that those who are a part of the church or appear to be a part of the church and one day walk away from the faith, uh, in so doing, are essentially doubling down on their unbelief because they've heard the gospel, they've seen it at work, and then to walk away says something doubly sure about what they do not believe about Jesus. Now, a stern warning is we're going to see him give to the Hebrews in chapter 6. He also gives them a strong word of encouragement in the verses that close our section today, verses 9 through 12, encouraging them that given the fruit that he sees in their lives, uh, that they ought to press on to continued maturity in Jesus. So what I want for us to grapple with today is this main idea, that there is a fine line between spiritual complacency, spiritual sluggishness, spiritual contentment with where you are, there's a fine line between that and faithlessness or lack of faith altogether. And what the author of Hebrews is calling the church to do 
is to not flirt with that thin line, but instead to make sure that they are growing steadily and intentionally in the direction of spiritual maturity, to grow in maturity in Christ. And as we work through this truth today, I want for us to be able to, and even begin, even now, and, and, and hopefully conclude this way in our time of worship this morning, by evaluating our own place of faith, where we are in faith in Jesus. And irrespective of where we are, whether we are immature in our faith or relatively mature in our faith, to make intentional steps to continue growing in maturity in Jesus and obedience to Him. Now, initially, I had uh, had that we would read this whole section of Scripture together, um, but I want to take this in pieces. So we're going to take this in about four different parts. So first, we're going to look at verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. So would you stand with me as you're able, uh, as we honor God by reading His Word? The author, having just uh, made this connection between Jesus' priesthood and the priesthood of Melchizedek, says, About this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The author of Hebrews, over the several verses that we'll look at this morning, gives essentially, I think, four different exhortations, encouragements to those to whom he is writing, and these are encouragements that are to us as well. So here first in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, he is encouraging the church to learn to chew, learn to chew. It is at this point the author of Hebrews really wants to move on to the realities of uh, Jesus Christ as the great high priest, uh, or, or in the way in which Melchizedek previews the kind of priesthood that Christ would fulfill in his death on the cross and in his resurrection. But the author of Hebrews can't get to this more advanced matter of thinking, this more advanced reality of Jesus, because the Hebrews themselves have made themselves dull to hearing these deeper truths, these deeper realities. He rebukes them for having been Christians long enough that they should be able to teach the gospel to others, which is itself the heart of discipleship, isn't it? Jesus says to his disciples uh, after he uh, is raised from the dead before he ascends to heaven in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. We are not making disciples unless we are teaching them the faith. And here the author of Hebrews is rebuking, he's correcting the, the, the church to which he is writing because they should be able to teach the gospel by now, but they aren't. He says they need the milk of the basics, even though they're old enough that they should be chewing on the meat of more mature thinking. But since instead they desire to remain in their theological immaturity, they are unable to grasp the things that the author of Hebrews wants them to grasp. Now, the things that he's talking about, this relationship between Melchizedek and Jesus, is not some secret knowledge. It's not something hidden away and entrusted only to certain advanced people in the faith. No, this is knowledge that is available to all who desire to hear it. This is knowledge that all of us as Christians, uh, the Hebrews included, should be able to grapple with and come to an understanding of. Unfortunately, the Hebrews have not themselves shouldered the responsibility to grow up in faith by wrestling and working through the Scriptures. Instead, they've remained feeble. They've remained weak. 
uh, in their ability to distinguish what is good and evil, what is theologically right and wrong in relation to the gospel. They have not learned to chew. The significance of this first uh, exhortation to us today is this, that the Christian, the one who is genuinely in Christ, should never come to any passage of Scripture, any theological idea or concept, and say, that's just too complicated for me. Those words should never come out of the lips of a genuine believer. We should never come to any part of God's Word and say, that's above my pay grade. We should instead always say, I'm striving to understand that. I'm striving to understand that. It's true, there are hard things to understand in God's Word. And this relationship between Jesus and Melchizedek is one of those hard things. I'll admit, I don't even know if I understand it all the way. I'm working hard to understand it. But what we can't do is come to difficult things in God's Word and say, that's too much, that's too hard for me. Uh, Just give me the easy stuff of Christianity and I'll move on. No, we are to be able to teach those who are disciples in Jesus everything that He has commanded, including the hard things. We have four children in our house. Uh, our three daughters, are, we've all got them to a relative state of independence, and we are happy about that. But we have also an uh, a 18-, 19-month-old living with us, and uh, uh, our nephew, and he is getting his two-year molars coming in. Now, those of you that have children and have shepherded children through those teething times know how painful that is. The size of the two-year molar in relation to a toddler's mouth is insanely large. I don't know how. I don't know how they fit in there. And just watching him teeth looks painful to me as you begin to see the edges of the tooth just beginning to poke through the gums. It just looks like it hurts. Now, you would think that the easy thing to do, the thing that would, that would most soothe the pain of a teething toddler, would be give, to, to give them more soft foods, more formula, more milk, more pureed carrots. But in reality, what helps them through the pain of teething most is not to have softer stuff but harder things, not to not chew, but to exercise those muscles and to work those teeth through the gums. You give them a carrot, you give them, I don't know, a long, hard spoon that they can't swallow to chew on or something like that. You, 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 you turn them into a puppy for a while, I guess. They just chew on everything. But in chewing, it soothes the pain of teething. And as those teeth come in, they are able to then chew food that is more nourishing to them than just milk or formula or pureed carrots. And instead, they can chew on meat. It's good to chew. So it is for us spiritually as well. When we are spiritually teething, when we come to those hard parts of God's Word that are difficult, that are maybe even causing us some cognitive pain to understand, what we need not to do is say, that's too complicated for me, give me the pureed carrots. Instead, what we need to do is say, I'm going to chew on that for a while until I work this out. We need to learn to chew. Second, the author of Hebrews encourages the church in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, to start building. Start building. Hear what he says. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings or baptisms, as some of your translations may say, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, uh, and, the, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Start building, he says. 
His desire is to take the Hebrews, these Christians, to depths of understanding in their faith that he knows will ultimately strengthen and secure their faith. He wants them to be built stronger. He wants to help them to revel in the wonderful realities of Christ's work as a great high priest for them. But he can't do this. He's he's impeded from moving forward because they are stuck on the fundamentals of their faith. These fundamentals he calls the elementary doctrine of Christ. Now, when he says elementary doctrine of Christ, he does not mean these are simple things that we dispose of after a while. No, he's saying these are the most preliminary, most primary. These are the most indispensable things that you should know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you know. Yet instead, the Hebrews have been laying this foundation of the gospel, walking away, forgetting what it was like, and coming back and having to relay it all again. What are the preliminaries of the faith that he speaks about? Well, he speaks of them in three different pairs. The first pair is repentance from uh, dead works and faith toward God. This is at the heart of the gospel, that we are all called to turn from sin, turn from self, stop rebelling against God, and instead turn in faith and trust in God through his son Jesus, who is given for us and for our sins and raised from the dead. We are also to engage in baptism, and, uh, and he refers to also laying on of hands. Baptism is, as we saw this morning in the life of Joshua, a public declaration that his faith, his allegiance is to Christ, his desires to grow and mature as a disciple of Jesus and to help others to do the same. Laying on of hands is not something necessarily we do very much in the 21st century in most churches, but what it seems to me to be is a sort of congregational approval of, uh, of an individual's faith in Christ. Often a leader in the church would lay hands on and pray over that person as they were baptized. Then we have the other two fundamental doctrines of the resurrection and of eternal judgment. We know that because Christ has ascended to heaven, that he will, because he promised, return to call the church to himself. And when Christ returns again, he will raise all of those from the dead who by faith have been united to him to enter with him and live forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Likewise, he will raise all of those who died apart from him, without relationship with him, to spend an eternity in judgment for their lifelong rebellion against God uh, and lack of recognition of their sin and need for a Savior who is Jesus. These are the fundamentals, the preliminaries of the gospel that the Hebrews keep having to go back and learn all over again. Start building, he says. The significance for us today is this. We are to, as Christians, assume nothing when it comes to the gospel. Assume nothing. Make sure, dear friend, that you know the gospel. And then and only then will you be able to build upward upon that foundation. Do not simply assume that you know the gospel. Know that you know the gospel. The foundation of our faith, that which we build upon in maturity in Christ, the good news of Jesus, is bounded on the one side by the holiness of our Creator God who made us in His image to know, to love, and to worship Him. He is perfect in every way and without sin in every way. The gospel is bounded on the other side by the reality of the sinfulness of mankind. That all of us, every one of us in this room, has rebelled against God's rightful reign in our lives. We've chosen to live life our own way, on our own terms, without God's help and apart from Him. 
The gospel is bounded further on the third side by the truth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is the Savior that we did not deserve, but that God in his love desired to send for us. Jesus, the Son of God, God in flesh, revealing the Father to us, took his sinless life and offered it as a, as a sacrifice once for all for your sins and mine on the cross and was raised again from the dead. And the gospel is bounded finally on the last side by the, by the necessity for all of us to place faith in Jesus for salvation that a right relationship with God, forgiveness of sins, abundant life today, and eternal life with Jesus forever does not come unless we uh, 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 cognitively, willingly place our faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Assume nothing, dear friends. Know that you know that you know the gospel. Any of you who have worshipped with us for very long know that we review the gospel. You hear the gospel in at least those terms every single week, and that's not by accident. My desire is that we all have a sure foundation in the gospel that we might build lives of maturity upon it. Start building. Third, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, make a commitment. Learn to chew, start building, make a commitment. Hear what he says. It is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Here we come to one of the strongest warnings in all of Scripture and one of the most challenging passages in all of God's Word to understand and apply to our lives. There are essentially four ways that this passage, specifically uh, Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 6, Four ways that it has been understood amongst Christians uh, throughout Christian history. And it's important, I feel, for us to work our way through these four ways of interpreting to come to the one that I believe makes the most sense based on the evidence that we have before us. This is a warning to first century Christians about what it means to fall away. Those are the words that the author uses. To fall away from faith and whether that one who falls away can ever be restored to the Christian faith if they do so. So here are the four ways of understanding Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, and we're going to try to cover these briefly. The first is this. Some believe, some Christian denominations and Christian traditions believe that this is a real warning to genuine Christians about, really, about the real possibility of losing their salvation. So one way to interpret this warning is that it is a, a, a real word of caution to real Christians. And in this way, the author would be saying that it is possible for genuine Christians to reject their faith, to walk away from it, to lose the salvation that they once had. I believe this is a very tenuous position to take, even an impossible position to take in light of all that we see in so many other places of Scripture that say the opposite. I mean, even just last week, we were looking at the fact that the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is a high priest forever and the mediator of an eternal salvation. What about that seems losable to you? 
Further, consider what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, when he speaks about him being the good shepherd. He says, I give them, my sheep, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus says, if you are in me, if you are in the grip of my grace, if you are one of my flock, can't nothing take you away from me. Paul underscores this in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39, where he essentially says there is nothing in all the universe, uh, seen or unseen, that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Further, Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6 of Philippians, he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We could go on and on and on, but these are just a small sampling of so many of the passages of Scripture that seem to say very clearly, if you you know Christ, if you are united to him by faith, you have nothing to fear, nothing to lose, nothing can take you from the grip of God's grace. So I do not believe that this can be a real warning to genuine Christians about losing their salvation. Second, some have interpreted this to be a hypothetical warning to engender or to bring about greater faithfulness in the life of the he- lives of the Hebrews. That the author is here speaking about a scenario that cannot really take place, but he's giving it anyway to try to muster up some more faith and genuineness and maturity amongst the believers. The only problem that I see with this is that nothing in the language that the author of Hebrews uses sounds hypothetical. There's, we just don't really have much grammatical evidence to say this is a real possibility. So a third way that this has been interpreted, and this is a little more valid, but I think it still falls short, is this, that this is a real warning to genuine Christians about the potential loss, not of salvation, but loss of rewards, loss of blessing from God in this life or in the next. That is to say, he's warning them, uh, those that he's writing to, that their stubbornness, their recalcitrance, their, their sluggishness to grow on in maturity looks a lot like those Israelites who were delivered from slavery in Egypt, who rebelled against God, who, who stubbornly resisted going into the land of Canaan to take over it, and who God allowed to die in the wilderness over the course of 40 years until a faithful generation would go in. Not that those Israelites were not any part of God's people, but that because of their stubbornness and their, their, uh, their, their, their sluggishness to believe God, they missed out on the reward of the promised land. So he would be saying, seem to be saying about the Hebrews as well, that Christians who are sluggish, who are slow, who are resistant to grow and mature, miss out on rewards in this life and blessings in heaven, may even come to a premature death because they have not uh, uh, grown on in maturity. The only issue that I have with, uh, with this interpretation is the, uh, is the use of the analogy of good and bad fruit of the land that the author of Hebrews uses next. It sounds a lot like the parable that Jesus tells of the wheat and the weeds in which there's one field and in it is growing wheat and in it is growing weeds and the servants of the master of that field want to pull up the weeds uh, uh, before the harvest time and the master says, no, you'll pull up the wheat too. So at harvest, uh, they cut down everything. The wheat is separated from the weeds. The wheat goes into the barn, is used for fruitful purposes. The weeds are gathered up and they're burned because they're worthless. The author of Hebrews seems to be using a similar analogy here, which is not an analogy analogy that speaks about um, uh, people losing rewards, but people not having salvation at all. So we come to the final option of interpretation, which I think makes the most sense, 
And let me just say, you can disagree with me about this, um, and, and I think we can all move forward in the gospel together for the most part. Um, I don't think there's a problem here. It would be helpful for some fruitful discussion, but this is what I think is the best understanding of this verse, that this is a real warning, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, a real warning to the whole church, to the whole assembly, in order to convict the hearts of unbelieving so-called Christians among them. I think the most plausible interpretation here is that the author is giving a real word of caution to everyone who is gathered together. And, in this, and we see this in the way that he describes those to whom he is talking to. He describes the community, the recipients of this letter as those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word and the powers of the age to come. The, the way he speaks about it looks like he's talking about Christians or at least external uh, identifiers of someone being a Christian. However, it is possible, and we know this, to be among, to be affiliated, to be present with the community of Christians without actually being a believer. We know that this is true. This was the case with Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8. Luke there tells about the gospel going out, uh, uh, expanding from Jerusalem into Judea and now into Samaria. And as the gospel goes into Samaria, there's this man named Simon. He's a magician. He's a pagan. And he sees the gospel moving about. And Luke says of Simon that he believed and was baptized. Looks like a believer, doesn't it? So as time goes by, Peter and John come down to Samaria from Jerusalem to, uh, to inspect the work of the gospel there in Samaria. And as they arrive, they begin laying their hands on these new believers in Christ. And in the same way that the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit become, begins to come upon now these Samaritans to uh, confirm the word of the gospel that they have believed. Meanwhile, Simon the magician is standing back and he's watching what the apostles are doing. He's watching the Holy Spirit move in power in the lives of these people that have believed the gospel. And he goes to Peter and John and he says, sirs, what will it cost for me to get this power? Whatever it is, I'll pay the price. I want this. And immediately Peter and John turn to Simon and they rebuke him for his wrongful thinking about how the Holy Spirit is received. They condemn his wrongful thinking about the gospel and, and that uh, somehow the Holy Spirit is mediated by the power of men and not given by the grace of God. They call him to repentance I think for the first time, the reality that there may be unbelievers in the midst of the congregation of Christians is clear. Simon is just one example. Jesus warns of those who, uh, even in his earthly ministry, those who are not genuine Christians, despite their work in his name, being separated from him because he did not know them. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, he says, On that day, the day of judgment, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name? Did we not do that in your name? Did we not give to those who are poor and needy? Do we not do all of this in your name? And Jesus will say, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Likewise, John the apostle writes in his first letter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, about the uh, apostasy, the walking away of some from the faith, from the church, which demonstrated their actual lack of genuine faith. He says, he says of those who, who later would deny Christ and leave the church, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. John is saying to the church, the very fact that you have some who claim to be Christians and left altogether just demonstrates they were never Christians to begin with. This is the case, this is a scenario that I think, these are the kinds of people that I think the author of Hebrews is warning. Those who are a member of a church, 
Maybe you've been attenders of church at a long time. Maybe even have been baptized, but have never actually placed faith in Jesus. He says that those who have experienced the assembly of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, they've heard the gospel, they've come to understand what it means, but walk away, they fall away, they leave the faith, that they are re-crucifying Jesus all over again, holding him up to contempt. What I believe he means by this is that someone who has understood all that it means to be a Christian and then denied it all and said, that's all a bunch of hooey. Those people are all a bunch of liars. They're just making it up. I never believed it anyway. I was just testing it out in my own life to see what it was. I never believed it. Forget it. What they are doing is now aligning themselves with those Jews and Romans who crucified Jesus as a blasphemer and a liar against God in the first place. They are saying Jesus should have died as a criminal because he's a liar. It's pointless. His death meant nothing. That's what it means to re-crucify or to crucify Jesus all over again. So then to be a part of the Christian community and then to walk away from the faith is to deny Christ's divinity and to double down on, your un, on an individual's unbelief. And in this way, in the mind of the author of Hebrews, it appears impossible to bring that sort of person back to repentance again having seen all the good of the gospel, having heard it over and over and over again, having even pretended to believe it and then walking away, doubling down on unbelief, he sees it as a near impossibility to bring that person back to repentance. Now listen, I don't want to stand in the place of God to say this or that cannot happen, but this is a stern warning and we should receive it sternly. The agricultural analogy of wheat and weeds growing up in the field which parallels some of what Jesus said uh, in his parable about the wheat and the tares, even the parable of the sower and different kinds of fruit that the gospel brings up, some of it that lasts and some of it that doesn't. Illustrates for us that the gospel lands on many kinds of hearts with various conditions for growth. Some hearts receive the gospel with gladness and grow up in faith and bear fruit, while others do not receive it at all or otherwise grow up as weeds in the midst of the wheat. In the end, though, The author of Hebrews wants us to know for certain that God will judge the hearts of all men. Those who are righteous in Christ, he will welcome into the new heavens and new earth. And those who are pretenders, those who are apostates, those who are anti-Christians will enter into eternal judgment. This is a stark reality that we need to allow to land on our hearts. For us today who are encountering this warning, I think the application of it for us is this, that the word Christian The word Christian should mean to us nothing less, nothing less than a person who has publicly declared that Jesus is Lord and is living consistently with that confession. The word Christian should mean nothing less than that. Look, we all know that putting a Ferrari decal on your Ford Fiesta doesn't make it a Ferrari. We all know that wearing a red jersey with a white number 10 does not make you Jimmy Garoppolo, star quarterback of the almost champion San Francisco 49ers. By the way, neither does wearing that same jersey and sitting in the stands or even standing on the sidelines make you a member of the football team. A Ferrari is a Ferrari because the guts of the vehicle is our Ferrari guts. A, a, a San Francisco 49er is so because his name is on the roster. He doesn't just stand on the sidelines. He appears on the field, taking a snap, throwing a pass, catching a ball, making a block, making that tackle, catching an interception. He's, uh, he is there participating in all that it means to be a member of the team. So it is for Christians. We are not members of a spectator sport. 
We are called to be growing, maturing believers in Jesus who are actively involved in that process every step of the way. But we have to say and admit, if we're really truthful with ourselves, that simply having a spiritual experience, even in a church, does not make you in and of itself a Christian. Again, even praying a prayer to receive Christ with your pastor does not in and of itself make you a Christian. There are no magic words that translate you into the kingdom of light. Rather, salvation is a matter of genuine faith, genuine trust, resting your whole life upon the promise and the person of Jesus Christ. It is a matter of lifelong commitment of the heart to Christ as King and Savior that results in genuine spiritual evidence that that commitment is there. Friend, if this text is landing hard on your heart today, my encouragement to you is to listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. If you think that you may be pretending, if you think that, that, that in any sense, your, whatever steps you have gone through to become a Christian were somehow disingenuine, listen to the call of the Holy Spirit and respond to Christ in faith today. If you've only been uh, involved in a church because you thought it would advance you somehow socially, or, or the only reason you're a member in a church is so you can have a, a close-knit group of friends, or you, you're only in church because you know, your, your parents made you go every day when you were a child, but you're not a member of a church because you believe Jesus Christ and your life is given to him in total commitment, hear the warning of the author of Hebrews today to make a commitment, to trust Jesus, to know that you know that you know that your faith is in him. Our author says, learn to chew. He says, start building. He says, make a commitment. And finally, in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 6, he says, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Listen to what he writes. He's just given this really stern warning. And he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Be encouraged. Having previously used the stick to press the Hebrews to maturity, the author now utilizes the carrot to do the same. Though he warns them so sternly about the dangers of walking away from the faith, and to those who show fruit of, uh, uh, instead to be those who show fruit of genuine faith, he now assures them that the fruit that he sees in their life is the kind of fruit that gives evidence of salvation. So he looks at their work in the gospel. He looks at their love in the name of Jesus for each other and even for others, maybe outside of their assembly, outside of their Christian community, maybe even love for those saints, those traveling evangelists who went through their city as they were planting churches along the way. He looks at everything external about their lives in this way and he says, this is good and you should be encouraged. Be encouraged to know that you are in Christ because the work that I see is the kind of work, the kind of evidence, the kind of fruit that comes out of a life that's grounded in Christ. But he doesn't stop there though, does he? So as to allow them to feel content in the genuineness of their faith. He doesn't say you're doing a good job, so don't worry about what I just said. No, he says you're doing very well. I believe things about, I believe that salvation is true of you. But knowing that, all the more you should want to grow in maturity. All the more you should want to advance in the faith. All the more you should want to look like Christ more and more to understand the realities of the gospel so that you might teach it to others. 
Because he knows that having the gospel right, having the right gospel foundation, doesn't leave any room for living the gospel wrongly. Likewise, having a foundational knowledge of Jesus, it it makes the Christian responsible to pursue a deeper and fuller and more advanced knowledge of Christ so that we can teach others, make disciples who make disciples. Be encouraged, he says. And so I want to end on a word of encouragement to all of us. And in so doing, I want to speak to two different kinds of people this morning. First, to those who may constantly wonder, am I really saved? You may have made a profession of faith in Jesus. You may be holding faith for Christ in your heart. Maybe you haven't made that public yet, but, but, but you're holding on to it personally. But you wonder, you struggle on a daily basis. Am I really saved? To you, I give you this word of encouragement. Settle your heart with the truth of the gospel. Settle that question, am I really saved, with the truth of the gospel. Be encouraged by the truth of the security that you have of being in Christ and go on to maturity and confidence in Him. Now, there are lots of reasons for which some of us uh, deal with this question, am I really saved? Perhaps it is because you have some sort of ongoing besetting sin, some kind of sin in your life that you just can't seem to kick. It just keeps plaguing you. Just because you struggle to sin, even after you've placed your faith in Christ, that does not make you unsaved. The God of all creation, who sent His Son to die for every sin ever committed, is capable of covering that sin. So don't question, am I really saved? But do press into the truth of the gospel that Christ died for me. My faith is in Him. I am saved. And instead, put that sin to bed. Ask God to give you the ability, the the strength to walk in repentance, move on in maturity. But perhaps you're one who is constantly asking themselves, am I really saved? And the reason you ask, am I really saved, is not because you've made a profession of faith but you struggle with sin, but rather because you've never made a profession of faith and you've been in a community of Christians or around Christians for a long time and you really struggle to know if you are in Christ and right with God. I give you the same encouragement. Settle your heart today. Put that question to bed with the truth of the gospel. Know Christ. Trust him. Know that he, your Savior, died for your sins, that you might be right with God. Settle that in your heart today. Make that commitment to Jesus. Go on to maturity and confidence in him. I want to speak to a second kind of person who probably characterizes more of us in this room than not. And these are those, and I include myself in this, who are often, sometimes, maybe even presently, content, complacent with our level of spirituality. To say, I've been walking with Christ for this many decades. I've learned all the things I need to learn. I know all the things I think I need to know. I'm good here. I've got two seminary degrees and I'm working on a third. I, I think I've got this Christianity thing worked out. What an arrogant thing for me to think. God help me from ever saying something as ridiculous as that. For those who are sluggish in their walk with Christ, who are resistant to learn and to grow in Jesus with the intention of teaching and discipling others, to those who fall into the trap of pride in different ways, this text says to you, says to me, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are that you don't need to grow in maturity in Christ? Who do you think you are that all of God's sanctifying work has come to its rightful end in your life today? It calls each of us who may be sluggish to grow in our maturity in Christ to stop flirting with that thin line between sluggishness in faith and faithlessness altogether and instead to make intentional steps to bear fruit of a mature life in Christ. 
Quit, quit towing the line of faithlessness in such a way that over a lifetime you may display that there was never any faith there to begin with. Instead, move intentionally, move deliberately in the direction of maturity. Now, pride attacks our hearts in two different ways to bring us to this point of spiritual contentment or sluggishness to grow. On the one hand, pride can cause some of us to arrogantly say, I don't need to grow. I'm fine where I am. I'm too good to grow. I'm too good to humble myself to be discipled by somebody else or to help disciple someone else. I'm fine just where I am. I don't need anyone's help. Pride also, though, on the other side, can attack those of us who are maybe less secure, less confident, not to say, look how far I've come, but to say, I could never do that. I could never mature in Christ that way. I just, I don't have the wherewithal. I, I, I barely made it out of high school, much less, you know, much less seminary. And, 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 and I struggle to understand passages like Hebrews 6. I, I just, I'm not called to this. Even to that sinful pool of pride, this text says to you, who do you think you are? You may not think you're an Abraham or a Moses or a David or a Solomon or a Jeremiah or a Paul or a Philip. You may say, I'm no Jesus. I can't do this. And yet, irrespective of your background or where you've come from or who you are today, if you are in Christ, this reality is true. You are a son or a daughter of God who has been adopted by His grace, transformed by His mercy, empowered by His Spirit, loved by the saints, edified by the Word, destined for resurrection, and called to glory. Who do you think you are not to grow in this? Who do you think you are to think that God, the Creator of all the universe, who could settle every problem of your sin with His Son, could not somehow work this out in you. Of course he can. And he stands ready and able and powerful to do so in you will, to do so in you. And he will, if you are willing to mature. God has called us to maturity. He's called us to learn to chew, to start building, to make that commitment, to be encouraged, to press on to obedience in Christ. And dear friends, brothers and sisters at First Baptist of West Albuquerque, this we will do if God permits. This we will do if God permits. I intend to take intentional steps to make plans to grow in my own faith, to continue growing in maturity in Jesus. I hope that you've been encouraged, dear Christian brother or sister, by this text to do the same. And if you're in this room today and you don't know Jesus, you, you are not in a relationship with him and the warning to those that the author of Hebrews writes to is landing heavily upon your heart today, do not leave without settling this question in your heart. Do I know Christ? Have I placed my faith in him? Is he my savior? Have I made that commitment? If there's any question about your salvation today or if you've been, you've been maybe coming to a place of placing commitment uh, 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 placing your life and commitment to Christ today, but you've not come to the point of making that decision public yet, let today be the day that you do that. Let today be the day that you do that publicly. After we dismiss, I'll be standing outside just to, to greet and, uh, and see you all as we go. Please come grab me, uh, uh, pull me aside. Let's talk about your life with Christ and how you can have certainty, assurance of your salvation by trusting Him. Let's pray together.